Well, here we are almost a couple weeks into the new year, and I'm sure all of us have already experienced a range of emotions from joy to sorrow, and that's the experience of life, right? We have moments or even seasons of mourning, and then moments or seasons of celebration. Such it is to be human. It is simply human to celebrate and to mourn. In fact, more than merely being human, these are the experiences of those who bear the image of God. Yes, with Adam and Eve's first sin, what we call the fall, ever since then, that divine image imprinted on humanity has indeed been marred and broken, but it hasn't been destroyed or utterly removed. And so we have feelings of celebration and even sorrow as those who bear God's image. Well, we could qualify that and say that, of course, God's emotions are never whimsical. Uh, No one is yanking on the chain of God's emotions and getting him to react accordingly. But nevertheless, the Bible tells us that God rejoices and God laments. And he does so Perfectly, which leads me to my point in all this so far. What if sometimes we weep when we shouldn't and sing when we shouldn't? What if we sometimes weep for the wrong things and what if we sometimes celebrate when we should mourn? What if because of that fall, because of that broken image of God, We sometimes celebrate what God doesn't celebrate, and we sometimes mourn that which God does not mourn. You could picture some scenarios of celebration and sadness happening in the wrong place at the wrong time. No one should dance a jig at grandma's funeral. Hopefully you didn't weep tears of sorrow on your wedding night. Probably no Jewish man or woman in 1945 wept tears of sorrow hearing that Adolf Hitler was dead. No decent American would sing and celebrate at the fall of the Twin Towers on 9-11. No good American soldier would hear the news of Osama bin Laden's execution and weep tears of grief. To witness someone celebrating genocide or terrorism or or to see someone weeping over true and real justice would be alarming, disturbing. And yet there are ways, more I think culturally acceptable ways, in which we may celebrate the wrong and mourn what's right. And what we celebrate and what we mourn tells a lot about us. What we celebrate at the end of life, especially, even more at the end of the world, will tell a lot lot about us. And even right now, what we celebrate and mourn may be an indication of our eternal destiny. So today we come to Revelation 18 in our Bibles. Turn there, if you would. Revelation 18, the last book of the Bible. We've been looking at songs in the Bible which celebrate God and his victory, his salvation, and his justice. And today we come to a fairly different kind of song, actually a a series of songs in Revelation 18, seven in all some of which are good and some of which are misguided. One song in Revelation 18 declares God's coming judgment on this world. And you might be surprised to learn that that's good. Another song in Revelation 18 pleads with God's people to stick with God and not be lured away by the world. And you might be surprised to learn that that's needed. 
There are a few songs in the middle of Revelation 18 that mourn. Really, the world mourns the end of the world as they know it. And you might be surprised to learn that that's bad. And a final song illustrates for us the nature of God's coming judgment. And you might be surprised to hear what it's like. You might even be surprised to think that some people still today still believe in it. We could call Revelation 18 a requiem for Babylon. A requiem? Yeah, a requiem is a series of songs for or about the dead. They often go with funerals, and sometimes funerals for people of great importance. So you might know Brahms uh, wrote a requiem, and Mozart wrote a requiem, and uh, in, in our own day, um, John Rutter of Cambridge University wrote a requiem. And I commend all three of those to you. They should occupy your playlist if, uh, if you've never listened to any of them. They're mostly in a minor key. They're heavy. They're dark. They lament. And rather powerfully so. So this is a requiem for Babylon. Why Babylon? Well, we'll get into that. What we'll see, just upon first read, even if you don't know what Babylon is or what it represents, it's the primary subject of each of these songs. We'll see some people celebrate Babylon and will mourn her demise, and others do not, and God certainly does not. Let me read for us Revelation 18 and then I'll explain more who this Babylon is in just a bit. We've got 24 verses in front of us. It'll take uh, about five minutes or so, but this is perhaps some of the best five minutes of your week. This is good stuff. This is God's word. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death in mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. 
the merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all those whose trade is on the sea, stood far off. And cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpets will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Well, there's a requiem for Babylon. If you have a Bible that marks out the poetry differently than the rest of the text, you can spot easily those seven songs or poems that I referred to. But we could break it down a little bit differently. We could reduce it to four headings of the kinds of songs that we see in Revelation 18. The first being a song of declaration. Babylon's doom is sure. A song of declaration. Babylon's doom is sure according to verses 1 through 3. Now who is this Babylon? We've delayed that long enough. Well, there was, of course, that literal, historic Babylon, that nation in the Old Testament that took captive uh, Judah in the 6th century B.C. But when Revelation talks about Babylon, it doesn't have that literal, historical kingdom in mind. Uh, Babylon had been destroyed for hundreds of years by the time the book of Revelation had been written. But it is using that real, historical, literal nation as a metaphor for wherever and whenever wickedness and worldliness are manifested or even institutionalized. What was that old, historic, real Babylon like? Well, it was, it was pagan and it was powerful and it was against the true and living God even though God used it for his greater purposes. Babylon of old subjugated and seduced its inhabitants. It was sensual and seductive and rich and materialistic and proud and godless. Now, first century Roman-like Christians would no doubt see their own Roman world as the modern manifestation of old Babylon. In fact, the connection between Babylon and Rome was, was intentional and, and obvious. You, you see this in just a passing comment in 1 Peter 5.13, where Peter says, she who is at Babylon sends her greetings. Now, no one was in the old historic Babylon. It was just ruins. So this mutual friend that Peter and his readers share apparently was in Rome. It was the modern-day Babylon, the, the pagan powerhouse, proud 
subjugating, coercing, rich, sensual, mighty. And especially under the emperors Nero and Domitian, Rome was institutionally against the Christians. The Christians were falsely blamed for the great fire of Rome in AD 64. They were apprehended and thrown into lion's dens. They were covered in animals' blood and then given over to the dogs to be eaten. They were put on stakes and lit on, lit on fire to illuminate Nero's garden parties. And less violently, but but no less troubling if you were going through it. Christians in those days were cut off from trading guilds in the Roman world. Trading guilds were, were how you bought or sold or got anything in first century, the first century Roman world. Here's how it worked. Every trade had a guild, and every guild had adopted one of the Roman gods. And part of the trading process with those tradesmen and in that guild involved sacrifices made to their God. Of course, no good Christian could go along with that. And so they were cut out of all of it. No sacrifice to the Roman God, no access to the buying and selling of goods in the Roman world. So imagine living in a society where you are cut off from currency and credit cards and, and entering the grocery store. And of course, days with no internet. There's no Amazon one-click at this point. And imagine that you have no backyard to start farming. You can imagine the temptation to go along to get along. To, to just fudge a little? Well, that's in large part why the book of Revelation was written. You might want to go back and reread the letters to the seven churches and see, well, the failings that they had and, and also the suffering that they faced. It's a good time to read that section of the book of Revelation with our conference called Clarus coming up as we work our way through those seven letters. Really, the whole book was written to churches, some of which had faced severe persecution, economical, being economically ostracized, and, and some imprisoned, and, and many of them had lost lives of family members and friends. The book of Revelation was also written to churches, some of which had... He had given up a little. They'd gone back to the world. They had gone along to get along, despite the compromise that that was for their faith. And so for those first century Christians in the Roman world, whether they're the comfortable compromised type or the weary persecuted ones, they needed to hear a word from heaven like this. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's going down. It's put in past tense because it's so sure. A mighty angel beaming with glory from heaven. He shows up on earth and says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It's as good as done. Rome will not last. Her persecution will not endure. Her sin will not go on forever. No nation, no kingdom is eternal. No matter how mighty they seem, no matter how many centuries they've ruled. And that's why Babylon in the book of Revelation isn't just Rome in the first century world. Babylon's a metaphor, again, for wherever wickedness and worldliness are manifested and even institutionalized. So Babylon, if you can keep this straight, Babylon isn't just Babylon of old. Babylon isn't just Rome of the first century world. And neither is Babylon in the book of Revelation some 
mysterious nation that will surface at the end of time as a single nation. It may or may not happen, but Babylon is the symbol for all that is opposed to God. Not just pinned to the first century, not just pinned to the last decade or so before Jesus comes back. In some places, Babylon is quite institutionalized and politicized and nationalized. And in other places, it's simply in the air. Sometimes the spirit of Babylon looks depraved and heinous and undeniably wicked. And sometimes the spirit of Babylon, well, it's pretty culturally acceptable. But notice that God sees through it all. What might seem like Rome, impressive and powerful and wealthy and sophisticated and even doing some good. Well, God sees it for what it is. Verse 2, a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. This is like God's MRI on humanity. And it's everywhere. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't want to see it. It's not just in those nations where chaos and war seem to be a hundredfold, what we know in our own country. It's not just in lands where there's a whole lot more witchcraft or, or more child sex trafficking than in our country. Verse 3 says, all nations, all nations. And read on. They have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. This is, this is imagery here. This is metaphor stuff. It's implying that the allure of Babylon is like sex. And the effects of Babylon are like drunkenness. That's trouble. No surprise, the whole world is caught up in it. From kings down to merchants, verse 3. They've all, we could say, hooked up with Babylon who's called a prostitute in chapter 17. And frankly, they've all gotten rich off her. And now they're, they're drunk and dumb about all of it. So Babylon is the idolatry of power and possessions and self and luxury and self-autonomy. Now you might be Wondering, You might be tempted to play devil's advocate here. and You might want to ask, is, are you implying that authority is bad? No. Are we implying here that wealth is always bad? No. But where these things replace God and become God-like, there is Babylon. And it's all coming down. Just like the first Babylon, just like the Empire of Rome, just like fill in the blank. It's all coming down. So what do we do about it? Well, listen to this song. Secondly, a song of exhortation. God's people must separate. They must separate. Verses 4 to 8. We'll just read verse 4 for now. Then I heard another voice from heaven, maybe an angel, maybe God himself, saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. What does it mean to come out of Babylon? Well, we know what it meant when Isaiah and Jeremiah both said almost the same exact phrase, come out of Babylon. Uh, both said it twice, I believe. They meant that at the end of the captivity in Babylon, God's people were to leave Babylon geographically 
literally, and they were to go back to the promised land. But Revelation doesn't have that in mind exactly when it says come out of Babylon. It's not a call for, for Christians to start trying to buy up some private islands to form Christian communities, to live on those places away from the world. Now, it's clear from almost every page of the New Testament that we're not to do that. And it's especially clear in what Jesus prayed for us in John 17. He prayed, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one while they're in the world. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So we rightly say as Christians that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. Christians do live in Babylon. In fact, we have a message for and a mission to Babylon while we're in it. But we're not to hitch ourselves to Babylon in such a way that we become Babylon. In that sense, we are to separate. We are to distinguish. Yes, we humbly recognize that we used to be of Babylon, of this fallen world. But now that we're redeemed, though we still remain in Babylon and have mission to Babylon, we are not to be of Babylon. And this is tricky stuff, we recognize. Because it would be easy, it would seem it would be easy to simply remove the temptation geographically and physically to just get on that private island. But we're not. Remember that word picture that Jesus gave us in Matthew 5 of salt and light. He said his people, his followers, are supposed to be like salt and light. Like a light that shines, representing God and pointing people to God. And that light should be public. It shouldn't be tucked away on the bottom side of a hill where no one can see it. The purpose for the light is so that it shines. It must be visible. As for salt... If it loses its saltiness, what good is it? But if it stays in the jar and doesn't rub up against anything, then what is it seasoning and what is it, what is it preserving? We've got the two issues of proximity and effectiveness. If we remove proximity to the world, what good is the effectiveness? And if we lose the effectiveness to the world, well, it just proves that our proximity has gone awry. We need both. It's like God calls Christians to use many of the same tools that the world uses. Work, paychecks, savings, buying, selling, rest, recreation, art, Civics, God calls Christians to use those things to glorify God and love our neighbor. But if those tools become like Gollum's precious ring and we become like Gollum, well, that's the spirit of Babylon alive and well in us. And yet it's, it's a little bit more than just being careful to not love good things too much or to love them more than God. It's not just about our affections. It's also about our decisions. It gets real con concrete, we could say. Will I give sacrificially and routinely to the local church or will I keep it for myself? Or will I say, yeah, sacrifice? I could do without this. I mean, <laughs> I could do without it just fine. Sure, they can have it. Will we keep racking up debt? Because we must have fill in the blank. We must have fill in the blank. 
Will you keep working 75 hours a week and you know your family's suffering for it, but you're not about to take a different job that would pay you less. Maybe, in fact, you have your eyes set on a promotion at that job, and that's why you work as long as you do, because you must get it. Are you willing to throw someone under the bus at work if they get in your way? Will you get the house you can't afford? Because you can't help it. Will you go on the vacation that you can't afford because you deserve it? Are you committed to dual incomes no matter what? Not because it's in the ultimate best interest of your family. Not because you need two incomes for sensible living. But because you must keep up certain standards of comfort and luxury and toys. Will I treat my employees harshly and try to wring every penny of work out of them for my bottom dollar? Or when my business could be one of those that we see in the headlines these days where I could be sued for some religious conviction to not do this or that service for you because of what it would seem to celebrate, which I think is wrong. Will I instead just go along to get along? Now, not all those examples are the same. Some are more black and white than others. Some have to do with motives behind a decision, not so much the decision itself. And we should say not all of us will agree on where we're going to draw the lines. But for those very reasons, this stuff deserves our careful attention and inspection. We should give inspection to decisions and commitments we've made and the motives behind them. And we should be prepared for the temptations that we could face. So some of us today need to actually literally identify an element of Babylonian-ness in our lives and decide to obey verse 4 today and just cut it off, just come out. Just leave it behind. And because look what's behind the scenes. Here's here's the MRI of this little song, if we can mix metaphors. Verse 5, her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Verse 7, she glorified herself and lived in luxury. In her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For people like that, here's what's coming. Here's what's coming for Babylon, verse 6. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion in her cup. Now the word here for double, uh, it could mean duplicate. And so what's probably happening here is not make her pay two times for the amount of sin she's done. It's, she's done this, make her pay this. It's duplicate, it's the same. That's the emphasis of the passage, justice. She's done this, she will get this. And all of it will come in a single day. In light of that, friends, come out, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Thirdly, The last two we'll run through a little more quickly. Thirdly, we have songs of lamentation here. The world weeps. Verses 9 to 20. In verses 9 to 20, we have a few songs of lament. You can look down in your Bibles and see the kings of the earth are those that begin in verse 9. And then the merchants of the earth, verse 11 in following, and then another heading and another song with the shipmasters and sailors, those who, those who handled the shipping of all the stuff, verse 17 in following. 
they all respond to the fall of Babylon. It's like the timeline fast-forwarded a bit. Well, it actually went to the end of time when Babylon is finally fallen. And of course, those who follow Babylon will follow her straight into hell at the end. But freeze frame right at that moment after Babylon has been thrown down and before those who follow her are also thrown down. How do they respond? They mourn and weep and they wail. They recall how great Babylon was and how much she gave to them, how rich they got, how pleasurable it was. And they mourn that she's gone. And so they mourn their loss because the collapse of the Babylonian system means the collapse of their stuff. No one buys their stuff anymore. And by the way, what stuff they had to offer. Do you see that in verses 12 to 13, that long, laborious list? 30 different goods are listed. Well, we should put goods in quotes because the last one is people, slaves, human souls. Surely one of the most Babylonian of economic strategies has been the capture and the sale and the keeping of human slaves and particularly the variety that our country knew very well for about 100 years. It's breathtaking that anyone would weep and wail at the loss of their slaves. But it actually happened on a grand scale in this country. And it's not done. It's not done in our country. It's certainly not done in the world. It's estimated that 20.9 million people today are in some form of slavery. And yet, don't assume that the spirit of Babylon is limited to slave owners. There are 29 other things that are all really familiar, even if, well, you don't know what frankincense is, but you sure know what nice wood is and things that smell good and clothes that looks good. The spirit of Babylon is alive and well in any of those who love, verse 14, they love their delicacies and their splendor. Verse 16, they love their fine linens and colorful clothes and expensive jewelry. Again, it's not that material things are innately evil, but we could ask ourselves these kind of questions like, how much do I love it? How tightly do I cling to it? How much do we trust in it? Does it define us? And how do we respond when it's taken away? At the end of time, it'll be no more. And you may have some pockets of that before the end comes. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. December was a bad month for the stock market. I don't know what your predictions for 2019 are. Who knows? When it goes, will we mourn? Will we weep? Will we wail? At the end of time, will our eyes be on what we've left behind and not so much on what's ahead? Especially for us Christians who believe that what's ahead is far better than anything that came before. It's been said that for the Christian, this life is as close to hell we get. This is as bad as it gets. Heaven will be infinitely better. But for those who are not Christians, for those who line themselves up with Babylon and not God in Christ, you got to know this life is as good as it gets. This right now is as close to heaven 
as you may ever experience. How sad is that lament of the movers and shakers? You almost want to have pity on them. They invested in what promised them much and looked powerful and seemed pleasurable, and they put all their eggs into that basket of buying and selling and having and enjoying. You can call it materialism. You can call it Babylonianism. But it's gone. Eventually it's gone. Poof, it's gone. And those who follow Babylon one day will go down with it. And so notice, they don't just lament Babylon being gone. Three times they stand afar off and fear. Verse 10, verse 15, verse 17. And then notice this in verse 20. We, there's a seemingly odd response offered as well in verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Now, I'm going to reserve any comment on that verse until next week. Because next week, we'll look at the first five verses of Revelation 19. And they're even trickier than this verse of verse 20 in chapter 18. I know it raises questions for you. But next week, we'll talk about things like the nature of God's coming judgment. And the justice of it. And if or when or how it is ever right for heaven to celebrate God's judgment of sinners. Come back next week. For now, just let this illustration sink in. Pun intended. Number four is a song of illustration, judgment like a stone in the sea. Verse 21, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone about the size of your pickup truck. He threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. What will God's final judgment be like? We'll talk about this more next week, but here's an illustration. It's like an angel throwing a giant millstone into the sea. It's sudden, it's complete, and it's final. It's sudden. The passage earlier has already said, in a single hour, in a single day, four times we get something like that. And now we see it in the angelic illustration. Sudden, he picks up a millstone and throws it into the sea. It's a mighty angel, by the way. Don't think he struggles to throw it. It's complete. It's the whole thing. He doesn't throw it in pieces like you might tear off bread to throw to ducks in the lake. And it's final. No more. Six times in three verses. No more. No more music, verse 22. No more craftsmanship. No more building, no more designing, no more cutting, no more beautifying. No more light. No more light. Now for those of us who have come out of Babylon and have washed our robes white in the blood of the Lamb, as the book of Revelation says earlier, we have a very different list of no mores. You want to see it? Revelation 21, verse 4. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And then again in verse 22 of the same chapter, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. And again in chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. 
but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and there'll be no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What set of no mores will you face? For those who refuse to come out of Babylon and align themselves with the Lamb, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and come to believe that he died in their place for the forgiveness of sins, the no more of your eternal destiny is no more Enjoyment, no more pleasure, no more purpose, no more creativity. It's the unraveling of life. In fact, there's even one more, no more. There's no more gospel. There's no more invitation. There are no more chances when Jesus comes back. Verse 23, the second half, the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. The bridegroom here is Jesus. The bride is the church, his people. And the voice that can still be heard today, but will not be heard at one point. That's what we call the gospel, the good news, the invitation. And it still stands The no mores haven't started. In fact, the book of Revelation ends with an invitation. Chapter 22, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say to you, Babylonians, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. The invitation is still in play. It will not be forever. There is no purgatory. You will not get a gospel invitation on the other side of your death. But you have it now. You have it today. And the condition for you to come is only thirst and poverty. If you're thirsty for God and you acknowledge that you have nothing to bring to the table, well, you're in great shape for him. If you know that you need a salvation and a satisfaction that can only come from him and you're willing to put down whatever you got in your hands and come to him with empty hands, he will save you. He will put you in a new city, a new creation. He'll give you a new heart. Oh, you'll still wrestle with some of the old stuff. Believe me, I sure do. But you'll have a new desire to identify with his world and not the fallen world of broken Babylon. Christian, heed this passage today by, well, by recognizing what Babylon is. Spot it. Go ahead. Keep spotting it. Don't be surprised when Babylon is all Babylonian. Come out. Separate yourself. Not geographically, not even relationally. But morally, yeah. Don't weep over what God will destroy. Instead, celebrate what will endure and what he does. Be comforted this day that no matter what is ahead, no matter if the government one day decides to turn against Christians in force, the church has been through that kind of thing before. That's why Revelation was written. We can endure with our eyes on God's final victory. 
And until that day of the final victory, let your voice be heard. This is the age where the bride has a voice and she says, come. And she keeps saying, come. And those who hear it for the first time and join the bride, they say to others, come, come, come. Or in the softer tones of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, let me close by reading some verses from Matthew 6. Turning from the heavy and dark requiem warnings of Revelation 18, which are needed, they're in the Bible, but they're not easy. Let's hear the soft and tender, closely related, but sounding so differently, these words from Jesus in Matthew 6. In fact, let's just bow together and and close our eyes and take this in and hear Jesus say it afresh to you today. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you put on. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't toil or spin. And if God so clothes the grass of the field, will he not so much more clothe you? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this high calling and these grand promises Help them, help us to believe them. Help us, Lord, to live like this. Help us for your namesake. Amen.